Well, I'm sorry about uh, Jay being sick this morning, um, uh, and, uh, but it is a privilege to preach. Actually, though, when uh, Carrie asked me to preach, I had to think about it for a moment. And then I realized I didn't have to wear a mask, and I said, I'm on. And uh, so here I am. We're in uh, Genesis 4. Genesis 4 is uh, an historical passage of massive importance in the history of salvation. It is a theological passage, the very ground of what we understand about humanity, the nature of man. And it is a very practical passage for our own hearts and for the preaching of the gospel. It's all of those things. So this is a foundational passage that we're looking at this morning, and I hope you'll keep your Bibles open to those 16 verses in Genesis 4. Very, very important that we have our eyes and our hearts on it. There was a, uh, right before uh, the millennium began, there was uh, an edition of the Chicago Tribune in February, which carried a news brief which began. Houston, Reuters, a Texas mother was so intent on making sure her daughter made the cheerleading squad that she was willing to hire a hitman to kill her competitor's mother, police said on Friday. So the woman's hope is that her 13-year-old daughter would make the cheerleading squad. If she killed her mother and she was in mourning, she would withdraw from competition. That's Reuters' report. Uh, Detectives said that uh, first she plotted to hire a hitman to kill both the girl and her mother, but decided a double murder was too expensive. So she settled for $2,500 on the head of the cheerleaders, competing cheerleaders' mother. Now, I mean, that, that trumps the imagination, doesn't it? Really? Really? Cheerleading on the cheap? All that is required is an inexpensive homicide. Give me an M. Give me a U. You know, our imagination is real with this kind of stuff. But this is Reuters' history. And actually, I don't think we should really be surprised because the last century stands as an unchallenged century of violence. The modern state has proven to be the greatest killer of all time. So from 1900 on, because more people, some 125 million people have been killed, murdered since 1900, which is more than all the wars preceding 1900 recorded in history. How about that? Now much of the blame for violence is like in Cambodia, be laid at the, the uh, really at the tombstones of godfathers like Marx and Sartre, for sure. But our culture, this culture, leads the way on homicide. 
Now, years ago, Chicago, the city of Chicago was the leader in homicide, and it still is in first place today, but there are all kinds of cities rising, right? Statistically, phenomenally, 30%, 40% in major cities. There's that. But today, there are more children dying at the hands of abusive parents than any other time. And feticide is booming. You tell me, is it 60 million or 70 million abortions since 1970? Uh, John Wayne Gacy from Chicago. Jeffrey Dahmer from Milwaukee. Ted Bundy from Seattle are all names that we all know, infamous names of murderers. There are national vocabulary. And most of us personally know or know someone who's been murdered. Most of us do. This is very sobering, but I've had two congregations, and each one of them, I've actually had a person that regularly attended the congregation that murdered someone while attending the preaching of the word. That'll sober you up, you know, about the reality of these things. And here in Genesis 4, homicide is the centerpiece of the chapter. But it is so much more than the story of the first murder. It is about the way of Cain. Now that's a quotation from Jude 11, the way of Cain, about corruption and the slide of a heart away from God into notorious sin. So what it does, right in the beginning, this historical piece reveals something of the essential nature of all mankind, condensing it into a picture of elementary, primal, primary power. And what you have in these 16 verses is a story on the one hand of depravity and on the other hand of grace. Amazing grace. Actually amazing depravity and amazing grace. And what you want to understand is that the author, Moses here, exercises great literary care in constructing the story. Uh, in the account, opening account of creation, if we were looking at Genesis 1 and 2, we'd find that sevens, multiples of sevens, are used to shape the narrative. You know, seven days and so on. But within verses 1 to 17, notice this. The name Abel occurs seven times. The name brother occurs seven times. And the name of the protagonist, Cain, occurs 14 times. Massive, massive care theologically and structurally to what Moses is telling us here. The careful Hebrew scholar Gordon Winham writes, the last verse of chapter 4, which is right at the end of the account, at the 
into the count uh, when uh, the name of the Lord begins to be intoned. It says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord contains the 70th mention of deity in Genesis. 35 in the first two chapters and 3 and 4, 35 more. Bottom line, vast intentionality in this narrative as it tells us about the essential nature of fallen mankind and calls us to really pay attention to us for our own hearts. Well, it doesn't start like that. Uh, it begins with an exuberant burst of optimism. This is in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now that, her pregnancy had to be a time of just incredible joy for her and Adam. Uh, wonder. And, and, I, and I would imagine like millions and millions of couples that were to follow, there might even been a time when he put her hand, his hand on her tummy and felt that movement on the inside, right? Now maybe he even put his ear down to her womb and listened to the little running heart of, of that, that man, that little Cain, before he was born. She had the first pain in childbirth because this was the first childbirth, but those terrible pangs gave way to joy that subsumed her pain. And when she says, I, I, I've, I've gotten a man, she uses the, the, the Hebrew word, what we have in the Hebrew, ish, which is not used anywhere in scripture of a baby. Ish is used all over the scripture of man, but never of a baby. Because in her amazement, she's gotten an ish just like the ish that she's married to. So she's got two ishes. And she is amazed. Another man, Eve said in effect, God made man, and now, with the help of the Lord, I've made a second man. So she saw Cain rightly as a work of God. Now, her words were also an implicit declaration of faith because Adam had believed the promise of Genesis 3.15, you know, that there was going to be an heir that was going to crush the head of Satan, that an heir was coming, the great right across the page, the proto-gospel there. He named Eve in chapter 3, verse 20, just before this, he named her Eve, which means life, because she would become the mother of all living. So she knew God had done it, and she praised him with his newly charged faith that God had kept his word. Well, second part of verse 2, you'll see, uh, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel... That name alludes unwittingly to a lack of permanence uh, of a life cut short. In fact, it is exactly the same words as used in Ecclesiastes for vanity, vanity, all is vanity, empty, empty, all is empty. 
uh, and it was prophetic of his life because it was going to be cut short. But no doubt, Abel's birth doubled the joy. She now was the mother of two sons. Three men filled her horizons. She was the mother of all living. Three smelly males filled her life. And so hope welled high for Adam and Eve. Now, we know nothing of their growing up years other than Cain followed in his father's footstep, his firstborn. His father tilled the ground. He tilled the ground. And then his little brother became a shepherd so that both had honorable primal positions. Think of Oklahoma. The, the cowboy and the farmer should be friends. That's what we got here. We don't know whether the brothers were in the habit of making offerings or whether the text talks about an initial presentation of offerings. Very likely, it wasn't the first occasion because the opening words in the course of time almost always denote a precise period of time. So it may have been at the end of the harvest, or a harvest, that they were to bring their offerings. It would be a perfect time. In any event, the instance perpetuated a crisis. And you see that in the second half of verse 2 into verse 5. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and fell on his face. Now, what it is here is that Cain is indifferent about his offering. Uh, he brought an offering. It was... Uh, it was an offering. He just brought the offering. But Abel brought his best because the rabbinic commentators note that fat and firstborn mean that he gave the pick of the flock. And so what you had in these two is a difference in their heart attitude. One just brings it presumptively, the other very carefully and reverently. Cain came to God on Cain's own self-prescribed terms, but Abel came to God on God's terms. And Cain's spirit was that of an arrogant indifference, and you'll see it in the story that follows. So that's Cain. Now, about Abel, we know a little bit about his heart because Hebrews 11 in the great faith chapter says this in Hebrews 11:4. We could turn there, but I'll just read it. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. See the difference? By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. So he is faithful and righteous. And by faith... He still speaks even though he 
is dead. Massive difference between these two. Uh, Cain's was not an offering from faith. He presumed himself to define what sacrifice would be. He was a captain of his heart. And God would have to deal with it. That's what you have with him. Cain's error was like the latter prophets, where Micah, this is Micah 6, 7, and 8, where he rails against them. And you'll get it here. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? And he says to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Cain was unjust. He was unmerciful and the opposite of humble. This is what the Lord requires. And as the giveaway to this, I already alluded to it, we read at the end of verse 5, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. You step back from this. Uh, Cain should have taken the divine disfavor as offering as a gracious communication for what it was, humbly asking for God's forgiveness and promising never again to fall short. He'd have been fine, right? Everything would have been okay, but he didn't. Blazing resentment toward God welled up in Cain. Toward God, now... Strangely, but, and I want to say predictably, it was directed at his brother Abel. Cain's hatred was so intense and throbbing that it distorted his body. No one could miss that. They could see what had happened. And then you see that God gently responded to this seething Cain with some questions. Uh, gracious remedial questions. The Lord said to Cain, you see it in verses 6 and 7, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? I mean, that's all grace. Literally, this, uh, if you do well, uh, will you not be accepted? If you do right, literally, is if you do right, there is uplift. Um, that is, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? As the New American Standard Bible has it. You've got a fallen countenance going to be lifted up. The, the, the downcast eyes of his unhappy face would be turned up to a happy face. That was the promise. And then in a last-ditch effort to deter Cain, God painted a frightening but hopeful picture. And that's in verse 7, at the end of verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must overrule it. Uh, God 
personified sin, his sin, Cain's sin, is a beast crouching at the door about to pounce on him, and a ravenous beast. And if Cain didn't master it, it he would be its victim. So the sin at the door of Cain's own, it was his own sin, and the beast was within him. The interior growth cycle would do it. That's the sin that's crouching there, that wants him consume. So he gives a great picture that a monster is going to devour him. You know, this accords with what James says in James, the first chapter, verses 14 and 15. Famous words, and you'll, you'll, you'll know them by the ear. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So the consequences of Cain's sin action would be far more reaching the essential sin itself. And here it is. Cain is standing at the edge of hell. God's graphic words about sin as a crouching beast bounced off his hardened heart and soul. And in monumental willfulness, he began his descent into the pit. Now we're talking about homicide. And the stark simplicity of the homicide accentuates the horror of the deed. Now, what you read in verse 8, now Cain spoke to his brother Abel. Doesn't say what he said, but he probably invited him out the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And what you have is haste and violence in this short description. And very interestingly, brother is used seven times in the narrative, two of them are in this verse. It says brother twice. Why? It wasn't just a homicide, it was a fratricide. Killing your own flesh and blood. You know, as his little brother, this little brother no doubt was very much like Cain. I, I've, they're, they're offspring of the original Adam and Eve, so they've got Pretty much the same DNA, wouldn't you say? I would say so. I, I, I think that's the case. So I think that his brother's flesh felt like his flesh. I think his brother's eyes were mirrors of his own eyes. I think his brother's breath smelled like his breath. What do you think? I think so. There were no guns or bombs to depersonalize the murder of his brother, so my question is, did he crush his skull, leaving like a fractured bug in the dirt, writhing until he died? Did he take the instrument that he had sacrificed his animals with and cut his throat and bleed him out? 
Did he strangle him with his own hands until his eyes glazed and there was no longer any breath? We have to ask those questions in this text. You see, his young brother was a good man, a righteous man, according to Hebrews 11.4. You know, it's very interesting. Jesus also calls him a prophet by implication in Matthew, Luke 15.51, calls him a prophet, Abel a prophet. But Cain killed him with his own blood drenched hands. Well, why? Because he hated Abel? Well, yes and no. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer poses the question, why does Cain murder? And then he answers, out of hatred for God. Bonhoeffer says, murder is an act of hatred to God for making a person who offends us or troubles us or is favored with gifts and honors we do not have or who stands in our way. Ah, she's standing in my way. Give me an M. That's the way King David came to murder. Uriah the Hittite is evidenced by his astonishing confession to David's confession to, to God in Psalm 51 for against you and you only have I sinned. Well, he had on the horizontal murdered Uriah. He'd done that. But you see, it was actually a sin against God because he was angry at God for having Uriah stand in his way. He couldn't get what he wanted. So ultimately, the sin is against God. Now, when we think about this, according to Jesus, we're exposed by our hatreds because our hatreds, let me use the word, our hatreds, I'm talking about really hatreds, are spiritual homicides, according to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, ultimately directed toward God, however private they may be. I'm talking about Matthew 6, excuse me. Well, just as the story of the fall, God was immediately on the spot as he'd been with Adam. Remember when Adam sinned, God was right there, and when Adam was challenged, he told the truth Sort of, as in Genesis 3. But Cain told an outright lie in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Flip indifference. I read somewhere, wit became the murderer's refuge. Paul wrote, this is Romans 1, 28 and 29, which is talking about the depravity that begins here. 
Romans 1, 28 and 29, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain knowledge of God, he, that is God, gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And the last line describes Cain so well. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Now, the voice of God is thundering over Cain. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It couldn't be silenced. This word cries out in scripture is used to describe men that are desperate for food and are starving and crying out. It's used another place in scripture where a woman is crying out as she's being raped screaming and it will not be silenced now Cain learned something he had not previously considered that Abel's body dead body though covered with some dirt perhaps could not be hidden because his blood screamed from the ground According to the Old Testament scholar Von Rod, he says, according to the Old Testament view, blood and life belong to God alone. Whenever a man commits murder, he attacks God's very own right of possession. To destroy life goes far beyond man's proper sphere. Spilled blood cannot be shoveled underground. It cries aloud to heaven and complains directly to the Lord of life. That's talking about murder. I just say as an aside, because I feel compelled to say it, the blood of 70 million babies is screaming out to God for justice. And it will come. William Blake said, my soul in fumes of blood cries for vengeance, blood on blood. And then it has Cain say, Oh, earth, cover not the blood of Abel. Or, uh, no, he just reversed it. Cover not the blood of Abel. So the curse fell. Look at verses 11 and 12. And now you are accursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. That is the curse. Now, this is the first instance of a human curse, a human being cursed. Not the first instance of a curse, because guess who was cursed before? The serpent. Genesis 3, right before this. So Cain and the serpent are cursed. Well, what would become of, we become a, a, a merely a wanderer, a wandering Bedouin? 
Well, the curse went farther than that. All his relationships with family were broken. He was a lifelong pariah to Adam and Eve and to their children. Lifelong. And the earth would become his enemy. Cain, who had once worked the soil, had watered it now with his brother's blood, and that blood cried out against him to God, and God saw the anger and did not turn away from him. That's a hint of grace. God, in fact, engaged him in a fatherly manner, probing with those remedial questions. Grace to Cain. God did not leave him exposed to Satan without recourse. He gave him recourse, grace. And after the murder, the Lord listened to his unrepentant, pitying cries. That was grace. And finally, what did God do? He placed a sign on Cain, which protected him the remainder of his life, his natural life, from violence. Amazing grace. Grace, 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 grace. Did Cain repent? Probably not. New Testament scriptures uniformly speak of Cain in the negative with phrases like the way of Cain and the one who was wicked and murdered his brother or in contrasted with unrighteous Abel. But we don't know what ultimately happened to him. Here's what I, I want us to hear after all of this. Cain was not beyond God's grace. You hear that? Cain was beyond, not beyond the grace of God in this life and in this world. He was not beyond that. We need to allow that to sink in. The sight of the cross. The scriptures tell us this is, uh, was the end of the text read in the Old Testament text today. First of all, we come to Mount Zion, the city of God. And it talks about aspects of the church. And finally it says in Hebrews 12, 24, we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Abel's blood is screaming for retribution and vengeance and Jesus' blood is speaking a better word, word of grace. Isn't that amazing? You know, there is a, a, a famous, there's two famous pictures. One is an iconic picture that uh, really goes back to the, the beginning of the 1900s. It's called the Scream by Edward Monch, you ever seen it? Oh, this is this, this uh, kind of abstract face screaming. You know where he got it? He got it from William Blake because Blake's picture of Cain murdering his brother and then running away with his face like this, his mouth open, screaming as he hears the blood of his brother scream for vengeance.
What this tells us is that this side of the cross, there is hope for us all. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Grace, forgiveness. His blood can wash away the hidden sins of those who come to him. And I'm talking about the things that nobody can see. The things that are really us at our worst, that uh, kind of uh, all those little wormy things inside that no, you want no one to see. He can wash it away. Things nobody can see. And the public sins, whatever they may be. Homicide, fratricide, genocide, feticide, and everything else. The blood of Jesus speaks the better word. No one is beyond the grace of God. No one. The blood, sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, a better word than vengeance, a better word which is forgiveness. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. The grace of God. I don't know half the people that are here. But I know, whoever you are, God's grace will avail for you if you turn to him and look to Jesus. Look to Jesus' blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I, I pray the grace of God will minister this to hearts this morning. God bless you all. Amen.